Welcome to The Conduit, a platform where we try to bring important ideas to the modern world. Our focal points are rationality, morality, and progress. My name is Lyndon. I work in mental health case management. I study artificial intelligence, and you can find my writing at Therefore Think. I'm Josh. I work in government. I volunteer at a drug reform organization, and I'm interested in effective altruism. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Oh, are we are we going? Surprise, surprise. Um, okay, welcome. Yeah, welcome to The Conduit. Exciting stuff. As you would have heard, this will be the third time now. <laughs> Lyndon, say stuff. Third time what? Third time that The Conduit would have been mentioned by the time that they're hearing these words. Uh, yeah. Fuck, well, we've definitely said it about a thousand times for well, today. Yeah. yeah, We've alluded to, we've thrown some sneaky hints in there, but yeah, um... I guess we'll address it even further. This has been something that we've been working towards for, fuck, it's probably been a couple of months now, to be honest, at least one month. Just a bit of a rebranding. Yeah. Hopefully you guys like it. Yeah. I don't don't know. I guess, um, yeah, we've we've bounced the idea back and forth um, with each other's selves. Fuck, I'm tired. Sorry. Um, (laughs) All all those recordings. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah take off um, me <laughs> <laughs> this will be a chill episode obviously folks um yeah so i guess it just as we sort of alluded to in the um the quick little recording that was uploaded prior to this um it, we kind of just it reflects a lot more around uh what we feel our place is um and what we feel this platform is for um because I very much think, you know, uh, we, like, we're not necessarily, at least at this stage, like, say, experts in one thing, um, you know, hyper-specialized in one area. Um, whereas I, I would say probably our place and, you know, to use, I guess, like, economics terminology, our place in the market is to serve people that um, are a little bit on the fence between two different worlds say like academia and you know everyday layman speak yeah i think um where a speciality to some degree is the ability to uh, generalize in in a sense and take ideas from a variety of different worlds um, yeah and i think just go but not not in a superficial manner i mean like i think Mm. it's being able to go one or two levels deeper and actually extract the principles and possibly some of the more like technical or counterintuitive mm. information or knowledge from certain fields um, and then try to repackage them in a way that, yeah, as you said, say like an academic in one field might be able to understand about another or that like just the general you know, curious, interested, mm. you know, quote unquote lay person um, can be like, oh, wow, that sort of, you know, that tidbit about evolutionary psychology, I can see yeah. how that maps onto work or, you yeah. know, that idea about um, status seeking. I can, I can see that in my friendship group. 
Yeah. Also mixed with lived experience, I think, <laughs> to use the hot phrase of the year. Um, you're, you're due for a promotion, <laughs> aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Buzzwords, virtue signaling. Um, just mixed with, yeah, the things that we've experienced because as we have mentioned a couple of times, we're both country boys at heart. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I think there's something non-trivial about that experience. Um, and perhaps we're just adding too much ide- uh, like idealistic narrative on top of that. But, um, you know, I like to think that there's something that comes with folks that grow up in the country and small towns. Um, you know, you've got a very close web of support in the community. Um, people, like people really know you. Like you, an example is like you're on a first name basis with say the police, not for anything bad, but just like as you're running around town as a 16 year old. And I think that kind of does add a bit of integrity if like the police are calling you by your first name um just in the sense of like you know get home it's like past dark and you're 16 years old kind of thing um yeah so i I think there's a lot to that um about our experience growing up in the country and then trying to yeah trying to evolve in the city and shifting around different um different sectors and different workplaces and industries um while the whole time you know, just constantly trying to be better, read books, listen to podcasts. Um, it It's hard to, it is always hard to like think you have a place to say these things or think like you're worthy of a platform of someone giving two hours of their week to you. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I just kind of think that like if we're not going to do it, someone else is going to do it. Uh, I think we're we are in a good place to be having these conversations, I think they are worthy. I think they're helpful. People have given us a lot of feedback saying that they've been helpful, um, which we gen- which we really appreciate. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's probably where we sit and where we're going. Yeah, I like that. And I, I would agree um, in both aspects where, you know, we do need to be careful of creating some kind of idealistic narrative for ourselves. But with that said, um, I do think... Like everyone has obviously beneficial experience to share, yeah. um, so that's that's true. Um, and I think we spoke in last week's episode about. Um, I said that everyone can be successful or quote unquote make it or or whatever. And I think part of that is that everyone obviously has a unique um, life history and experience to share. But mm. as you highlighted, I think two of the core the core things. Um, that we bond over and we can potentially share insights on relate to that small town connectedness and um, integrity, hopefully. Um, (laughs) And the other is the very conscious choice of, well, you know, whatever track we were sort of born into, if we want to grow up, um, like, I guess everyone's sort of born into some kind of track. And I think, mm. you know, you can get out of it, get off it, you know, choose your own path, whatever. But um, say in a very general sense, it wasn't like we were born to doctors or lawyers who mm. and then went on to a decent school and then it was always kind of like, oh, I'd, I just go on to study law or go on to study medicine because that's what mum or dad did um, or whatever. We probably yeah decided the general 
um, you know, magnetism of the culture that we grew up in. Like we wanted to sort of get outside of that and rather gravitate towards something like, yeah, yeah. The, the common mean. Um, and by that you just mean it's sticky. It's hard to get out usually. Yeah, well, just like, and I don't even mean just that, but what I'm getting at is like once we consciously decided, no, I'm, I'm going to do something else, hmm. then it's like, well, you had the default path. And now once you've decided to go against the default, hmm. it's like pure openness, pure randomness hmm. in a sense. It's like now, now what are you going to do? Yeah. Got you. Um, and I think that has meant that we've both, I think thought analytically about our path to yeah. a significant extent, possibly more so than others who were just born onto one. And again, I'm not trying to suggest that we've undergone, you know, adversities that others haven't because others have obviously gone yeah. through adversities that we haven't. But I'm just, again, speaking from our experience, once we decided, nope, we're going to do something else. We're going to try and, um, yeah, blaze our own trail. Hmm. It meant the next question was like, well, shit, what are we going to do? And then yeah. it meant, yeah, a lot of movement across sectors, a lot of pro-con analysis and just like, where do we fit in the world? Where do we want to go? Yeah, yeah. Like we said about, um, you know, sort of everyone having the potential, everyone having the potential to, say, be successful, grow their audience. Because I do think, again, a little bit of our unique addition to the market of podcasts and ideas and writing and whatever else is this kind of little bit of underdog chip on your shoulderness that comes along with coming from where we come from. And again, like not to, like it wasn't terrible or anything, not the point I'm trying to get across. It's just, it's quite objectively the case that people that grow up in rural areas um, have these slight, um, what are they called? Not detriments, but. Well, it's just the term I was going to throw in was like on a culture a little bit more, but. Oh, okay. That's a different train of thought. I was just getting at that like, if you take if you take year twelve in a rural area, you get like ten percent more. Is it ten percent on your ATAR? Yeah, there's um, yeah, it's just like it's just a disadvantage slightly disadvantage, across the board. Yeah, that's what I was looking at. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, so there's a slight disadvantage um, to just growing up in rural areas in terms of uh, I guess like educational success and career growth and career success, etc. That's on, that's the only thing I'm really speaking to. Um, the quiet safe areas, yada, yada. But yeah, I think like a, a bit of a unique part of our contribution is sort of speaking for everyone like that. Um, like I, I often do like to think of, say like my younger self or your younger self, finding a voice like this to hopefully be informed by and guided by um i think that's like helped a lot of what i've done like in the coaching stuff previously i think that was a motivator like i was always trying to find out stuff that would have been helpful to me when i was younger um and yeah i think this is along the same vein it's just like figuring out the maps and figuring out the blueprints um or like trying to figure out the territory a little bit better um, and then again, relaying that information um, and trying to uh, raise a lot of boats, rising tide raises boats, that, that idea. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, it is interesting to speak just quickly to the, I don't like, I don't want to use the word disadvantage, but anyway, um, of sort of the whole small country town thing. Cause I was reflecting on 
on that this week. So now we're probably going to fall into that pattern that we do as well. I say something, you say, oh, yeah, I was thinking about that this week too. And then we go back and forth about, oh, it's not the first time I thought this. but <laughs> So the name has changed, the content has not. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking about a similar point because I was reading, um, as I do, I was reading a blog this week. Uh, this one was by, it's called Minding Our Way, I think, um, by Nate Saws. I really like it. Um, he works at the... Machine Intelligence Research Institute, um, who I like paying a fair bit of attention to in regards to AI alignment stuff. Um, but yeah, Nate was writing about, um, I guess, his kind of just uh, evolution and his, um, yeah, his path to becoming whatever he is currently. And he spoke about like going to uni and then like taking his first, I think it was like economics class and just being sort of mind blown and he changed majors after that into economics um and was just like oh this makes such this is such a useful lens for taking to the world and he sort of Mm. said about how he'd never been you know he'd never taken an economics class um in his high school because it was never like never in front of him yeah and i think that's just one of the probably been one of the mind-blowing things for us and why we've become so passionate about lots of these fields hmm. is because they weren't ideas that we're exposed to. Yeah, true. Um, like, and I, I sort of, again, I was just reflecting on my my path out of um, high school and I went straight into sports science and, um, you know, bachelor's and master's there because sport was so uh, regarded and it was such a high-status yeah. thing in a... You know, again, a small country. It's across Australia, sport is high status for sure. But um, yeah, country town. Small country town for sure. And I wasn't a gun at sports. So I was kind of like, I still want to work in sport. How can I mm. be um, involved in this? And and as yeah, I made those initial choices in early adulthood very much around that. And now, you know, at 28, I'm finding myself just obsessed with computer science and artificial intelligence and and those kinds of ideas and i've gone back and forth about like why didn't i do this <laughs> straight out of school <laughs> yeah, yeah as of course you do and you can't you know you can never make the informed decisions that you i guess arrive at later in life hmm. you can't make them earlier yeah but the thing is is like i wasn't surrounded by computer scientists or it's like it was just not exactly it was invisible to me yeah um and then again, just to sorry, round out, I've gone on a bit of a monologue here, but no. the point is, is that I think we've become really obsessed with a lot of these multidisciplinary ideas and that's why we're trying to almost shove them into some people's awareness at times and just say like, you know, here's a, here's something that you might be not aware of. And it just, it slightly expands that perspective and worldview, I think a little bit and, hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, Thoughts? yeah, it kind of it well it definitely highlights the role of luck and again just speaks to this well it's adding to the mountain of evidence at least in my view uh, of determinism and free will um, or say the lack of free will um, and I think that really adds a lot to it because again if if you're not exposed to computer science as a young person like what possible chance do you have at um, wanting to study it or valuing it as a young person if you don't even know it exists. So there is just that fact of 
like you need exposure to the thing to even value the thing and as you spoke about yeah I was very much the same with sport it's like that's kind of all we had really um, exposure to but probably more so like that's what was highly valued and that was kind of the only way quote-unquote out of this little small town Um, and so that's what I put all my eggs into that basket and that's why I can't do math at age 26 (laughs) but um yeah like I I really because I I think about that quite a lot as well um but yeah I think it just at the end of the day like how do you value something you don't value and like what worth is it to retrospectively say I wish I valued this when I didn't value this (laughs) but funnily enough that is like a lot of I think again our goals is trying to look at where we are now and be like, okay, given I value this now and given what the future potentially holds and what the future potentially looks like, what ought I value now um, that I don't currently value? And and again, like what am I overvaluing now that I probably, um, you know, should start to uh, recalibrate how much I value things? Because I think that's a lot of... A lot of where our interests lie is just recalibrating our values and then acting accordingly with that. And that's probably like a bit of a crude definition of rationality as well. Yeah, definitely a um a good sort of approximation of a definition of rationality. Um Yeah, two two sort of thoughts there. One one more general, one more specific. Um the general one was I think um, so, like, one of the issues that kids growing up in small towns um, face is that, because possibly it's not it's not so much exposure to subjects. So, the local high school could put on, you know, economics and computer science classes. That's so not so much the issue. Because I know the high school I went to did try some of that. Mm. Um, but the issue is, is, like, having respectable um high status people within those fields like i don't think you initially get drawn to you know you know you don't get drawn to biology you get drawn to your biology teacher and you think she's really cool or he's awesome (laughs) she's really hot (laughs) wasn't gonna say that (laughs) um and i think it's yeah no it's it's the same sort of thing with sport or whatever like it's just you get you try to mimic, I guess, the yeah. people you look up to and then all of a sudden you start finding, oh, wow, I actually really like biology or whatever it is. I think a good example is just like, uh, and again, not to use this derogatory terminology, but just like the loser math and science teachers we had growing up. Speaking to your point, it's like, this person seems like an absolute dorkazoid. I want nothing to do with them. Therefore, the class and the content is boring. Um, versus like the cool PE teacher who was like this 25-year-old dude who played footy at the local club. It's like, yeah, I want to aspire to be that person. Um, and he's like, yeah, you don't need school. Like, look at me. I worked out I worked out fine. <laughs> yeah, I worked out fine. I'm making $33,000 a year. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I think that just has so much to do with it. Again, like memetics, mimesis, we're just like, um, what is it? Copying um, or wanting to... What's the term? Wanting to wanting to copy the yeah. people that we are looking at. And um, if we don't have those like good role models um, or, you know, that doesn't look like something we want to aspire to do, then 
how are we ever going to be exposed to it? Yeah, and I think that's probably ultimately what drew myself and probably yourself to to the big smoke, the big city. Yeah, yeah, and not to um not to rag on PE teachers there. They obviously <laughs> form a um very important role. And as someone who yeah. you know, well, we've both worked in the fitness industry for a long time. Like, yeah. think and you know the obesity epidemic and all kinds of things like that like general health nutrition physical exercise um physical activity and exercise um you know knowledge and education is very important and the standard of which should be raised so yeah PE teachers certainly play an important role there um the point i was more so getting at is sort of like just the warping of kids minds um that goes on because there's there's just these weird status hierarchies i guess in yeah those small towns and the sort of it's like just in high school in general like the cool kids don't end up probably having the coolest life because they they optimize so much for you know peak experience in those high school years yeah i think like we've spoken about previously um the the status game and the social game and the who's who is kind of the only game in town as a teenager and so that's really like regardless of what the class is or what what the content is or the structure that's really all you're drawn to and probably going to optimize for um, and be deterred away from um and yeah that was again like that was me with math and science like just really disliked these teachers and they probably didn't have two flash thoughts about myself as well um and yeah that's where I sort of shifted down the path I shifted down. But like, I think I've said this to you before. I'm quite happy that I did have it that way. Like I'd rather have the ingrained habit of health and fitness in me than the ingrained habit of math and science and then trying to learn it later rather than the reverse. Because I feel like it would be a lot harder or perhaps more detrimental to health to try and re or try and learn the habits of health and fitness as a 30 year old overweight 30 year old when you're a math and science whiz um yeah i'm pretty happy that those are just like second nature to me and now i can try and improve my thinking and try and improve my um critical thinking and scientific mind as i age yeah yeah i do i do agree overall for sure um there's yeah, yeah, like, and I guess, I guess, science and sort of technical fields are optional to some extent, and and obviously we're trying to opt into them and and be involved in those ideas and and understand them. But your personal health is not optional, mm, so it's like yeah. the fact that we have that almost taken care of habitually, unconsciously, yeah. is extremely advantageous for us because we can then spend the next. You know, 70 years of our life or whatever it may be um trying to better grapple with as we said stem fields whereas people that are just naturally scientific that you know they may have incredible you know minds and and knowledge sets by 15 20 years old but then spend the rest of their life trying to manage their weight or their health and something like that and that's yeah if you were to present the two options to me i'd probably yeah pick the path that we took i Mm. guess yeah better or worse not that it's been like completely left of field because i would say that there has been 
I mean, it hasn't been perfect, but there has been a decent amount of transference with ideas and um, frameworks, you know, sort of frameworks of thought and rules of thumb, um, just in regards to, you know, things like systems and like stress response, like how, because again, like the, the body is obviously a system as well, how systems respond to stress. I think that was something good to learn. Um, learn that through experience and then you sort of develop the terminology and the vocabulary around it afterwards. Um, so I think there has been, there definitely has been some things that have been quite helpful um, that I've learned from, yeah, just literally health and sport. Um, but I would say probably the main thing as the sloppy Joe Rogan <laughs> rants on about day in and day out, adversity, man, <laughs> like self-imposed adversity. Um, I would say that that is probably a very, very good antidote to a lot of the sufferings in life is intentionally titrating, pardon me, um, or just putting in some um, self-imposed suffering or discomfort or adversity into your life so then you're not sort of blindsided when it's not self-imposed. Yeah, this is... um I'm not sure if I've said this to you before, but I like I think this is effectively the practice of you know rationality. It's like you're just trying to mm. to titrate um, unpleasantness. Really, it's like okay, whatever I mm. want to believe, it's I'm not I'm not going to be swayed by that. I'm going to try and see this as clearly as possible, so that there's not this big build up of you know things that I'm oblivious to, and then having the rug ripped out from underneath me. Mm. It's just like seeing perfectly in the moment as much as you can um, so that you sort of like evenly distribute unpleasantness, I guess, throughout time. Yeah. Do you feel, I mean, Danny Kahneman's got that sort of recent quote that, you know, after all his writing and research and work, he's, he claims in an interview that he's no more better at, you know, um, identifying or not identifying, but he's no more better at, creating an antidote or sidestepping these um, cognitive biases than anyone else or than prior to all this years of research and writing and talking and thinking about it. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Like sometimes I'm a bit incredulous about that point that he makes, but at other times I feel the exact same way. (laughs) Like at work, I definitely get blindsided sometimes when someone will just bring something up that after the fact... I 1000% should have recognized and then I just have that moment of like, fuck, I'm like no better than five years ago if I didn't recognize this one thing. You know what I mean? Like there's still so many of those points that come up where you're just one of the many, you know, you're literally the mean on the irrational distribution. Yeah, I do. I do feel the... um the pain of that kind of like idea sinking in at certain points, but ultimately I just, I haven't bought it. Um, Mm. Yeah, it would, I probably can't give tremendously good reasons off the top of my head. Um, But I get like the, probably the most obvious thing to me is that, when Kahneman sort of said that quote, he had just, you know, he spent a lot of his life, as you and I have spoken about personally, 
studying biases in a descriptive way. Like it wasn't yeah. actually trying to overcome them. He's just like, <clears throat> he just spent time looking for biases basically mm. and then yeah. giving it a name. And yeah. then like obviously even like some of his research hasn't replicated that well. And mm. he really, he obviously did really important things and won a Nobel Prize for it. But there are people who have, you know, spent time building on top of that research and going, cool, all right, the mind's super funky. What are the things that we can do to mm. you know, improve it? And I think their research shows a ton of validity um, as, yeah. as um, you know, Stephen Pinker goes into in, in his recent book, Rationality. Like a lot of the um, questions that Kahneman and Tversky would use in uh, their studies that would induce irrationality in people those questions are better answered when substitute like more realistic Hmm. versions of the same question like they are logically the same but just the criteria of the actual question is more realistic like they're better answered by people and it's yeah i guess that's i think just like one little point that we can be like well yeah it's not all doom and gloom i think we can make better decisions and Hmm. I think over time we definitely do make better decisions, mostly as a product of gaining experience. But if I think you're looking to enhance the process or learn some theory along the way, then that can be additive to the experience. And yeah, I I think you do get better. Yeah. I would say it probably just highlights that it's got to be a practice and that like any other practice, the second you... Um, the second you neglect that practice, you sort of lose the skill. Um, and yeah, again, I'll definitely say that has been the case for myself. Um, but I would also say on the other side, I, I have noticed places where I'm uh, significantly improved, kind of um, obviously improved, if I can so- say so myself. And it's also a little bit of a case of like, who are you? Who are we able to compare ourselves to at this stage? Um, you know what I mean? Like if you don't, like if all we're talking to is each other a lot of the time, <laughs> like if, if my comparison of how rational my thought processes are is to you and like there's somewhat of a linear um, trajectory for you as well, then it's like it's not really changing. However, yeah, again, the comparison needs to be against what my thinking was say two years ago five years ago um or someone else but yeah i would i would say there has been some noticeable changes um i would say like the the lens of economics has probably been the the most important um little tool that i've picked up along the way um again just like probably reflecting on our last 33 episodes and Six-ish months, <laughs> quarter century. <laughs> did you notice? Yeah. I even fucked up the rounding up and yeah, rounding I did. down. <laughs> oh, and so then, it, then I was like, yeah, there's like 96 hours in the week. It's like, <laughs> yeah. bro, it's like three and a half days. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Math guys, again, not specialists. Um, but yeah, just reflecting as a, you know, this is kind of a good point of reflection, Um for us, uh, yeah, I would say that the, the lens of economics has probably been one of the most useful and influential lenses um, and 
shout out to my brother Benny. He gave me my first economics book. It was The Economics of Just About Everything by I'm forgetting, apologies. But um yeah, that was it Tim Harford? Tim. Yeah, maybe actually. It's got the sausage and the fork on the front cover. It was kind of like a for economics sort of intro to economics, um, pop culture references and fun little ideas that aren't like super robust, but it's again, it's just an introduction to the ideas. Um, and again, it like speaks to this free will thing of like, I didn't choose to have that book gifted to me. Like I was reading this self-help book and he's like, fuck that off, read this. <laughs> um, so he was really great. And that, yeah, that was my first introduction to economics, uh, I don't know, like six years ago. And that was really good. And it's been one of the best lenses to look at the world through. Um, and yeah, that's all I'll say about that. No, I like that. I think it's cool to share these things. Um, I think possibly, I don't know if there's been a particular field that's probably been most useful for me. I definitely agree in regards to the benefits of um, learning about stress response and sort of testing systems and how they adapt and homeostasis. That was really useful. Um, and I think just getting good insights from working with people in a coaching perspective and just even amongst colleagues um, within an organization where mm. there's a bunch of competing demands and different incentives and interests. Yeah. Um, those insights into psychology, I think was super useful um, and just how, just the range of factors that go into what someone does. And you can take just the, the one-to-one relationship between a coach and a client, if you like. It's like you can ask someone to do something and they'll do something oh, yeah. between what you want them to do and, you know, what they were going to do anyway. Or your you know, your intervention might actually cause, even though I said, oh, I want you to eat better over the weekend, they might eat worse than average over the weekend. Yeah. And there's, I think that was really good insight that just um, maybe gave me a first taste of game theoretic kind of ideas and just habit psychology and yeah, behaviorism and all kinds of things sort of around that area Hmm. that really wet my whistle. Um, (laughs) Generally just, I think the, Rather than a field, as I said, that was that was useful. But I think the most beneficial sort of practice that I picked up was just deeper and deeper introspection, hmm. just a greater awareness for my own thoughts. And I still get tangled in my own thoughts, and I still make a ton of reasoning errors. And you know, I'm more emotional than I should be at times. I'm less emotional than I should be at other times. I'm biased, flawed, all that. But yeah, just back to your earlier point you know i sort of think like you know roger federer still misses forehands he still you know serves faults but and a lot of the probably you know er when he makes errors he can draw a line back to and go oh that was the same error i used to make at 18 like i'm Mm -hmm. no better than i was at 18 it's like just because you can link an error you made in the current moment Mm -hmm. to something that you did 20 years ago doesn't mean you're not better it's obviously the frequency and the magnitude that those problems arise. You know, he's missing forehands, you know, five in a thousand now, whereas he used to miss, you know, five in mm. 500. That's that's still an improvement. 
Do you want to reference that Eliezer article for the third week in a row? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> may as well at this stage. Mate, I was going to reference my own article. <laughs> yeah, the mistakes one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I forget what it's called. <laughs> oh, meditation, meditation on mistakes. On mistakes. Shout That's out right. to thereforethink.blog, folks. Yeah. And, uh, again, I, it really highlights like another one of the useful insights I think that we've come across and discussed quite a bit. It's just the numbers a or the game of numbers in everything. Creativity is probably the best example. Um, there's a band called Catfish and the Bottleman. I'm pretty sure that's what it's called. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there's a band called Catfish and the Bottleman. Um, and, you know, great little band. Their lead singer, Zan Van or something. I forget his name. <laughs> but, uh, yes, Catfish and the Bottleman. Anyway, there's an interview where the lead singer is talking about how he writes songs. Um, and it, he just states it, it very explicitly. It's just like, it's a numbers game. I'll write a hundred songs. Two of them will be good. And I think that really holds up for a lot of, uh, not only creative endeavors, but just any endeavors. It's like one, it's the idea of like, you're not going to win a fight unless you have your foot in the ring. So first of all, you've got to actually go from zero to one. Um, and then again, most ideas are bad. Some are useful. Um, well, yeah, most ideas are wrong or most ideas don't work. Um, so the more you churn out, the more chance you have to have um, success. So I think there's like a couple of different models at play. And I think the logical end or like the insight that you can extrapolate from like blending these models um, is just like just do it and just do it a lot. Continually improve and iterate, yada, yada. Um and then, yeah, you might get somewhere. And uh, anyone can do it, like we spoke about the other week. Go on YouTube and learn whatever the F you want to learn because you can learn literally anything on there. Yeah, I really like that. I always come back to the um, the babble and prune analogy. Oh, yeah. Um, or the generator discriminator. Um, like we we referenced in one of our mental models kind of episodes about um, like evolution works by a similar process, just mutation and then selection. Um, yeah, I, I think there's massive, like we spoke last week about success and I guess you can't control success because that has some kind of random luck component to it. And all of this does have a random luck component to it, but there are things much more causally within your control. And that is Hmm. how much you output, you know, that's your sort of generator, um, or babble component. And then just the standard that you set, like your discriminator, filter, selection kind of process. Mm. And it's like, you just want to be working generally on both of them. Mm. Um, yeah, like, you know, writing, trying to write consistently. Like you do just learn to babble a lot and get thoughts out and just like put more to paper. And I just comb through more mm. and more of my thoughts. And like, oh man, the, I probably start a dozen articles and publish a quarter of them. I don't even know less than, um, but that process of writing 15 pages and then creating only three pages that are worth publishing. And then only one of those three is worth reading to a lot of people. It's Mm. like, you still create one thing worth reading out of X Mm. amount of work. And then I think you just try to systemize and refine that process over time. What's the Asimov quote? 
write enough bad writing till the good writing starts to come out. Yeah, something like that. And he did with his nearly 700 books of Crazy. output. Prolific. Um, yeah, I love it. Okay, what other thoughts did I have? I had a few sitting there. One, I was, we started on my general... Uh, sorry. Yeah, my general point before. And I was going to get back to my specific <laughs> <Yeah>. point. <laughs> point 1.1a. Point one yeah. Um, the specific point I was going to reference that I came across this week that I really liked, um, I was just watching some YouTube and, um, this girl, I forget her name, um, was sort of saying the reason that she chose to move out of pharmacology, um, and into computer science for her master's. So she did a pharmacology undergrad and then moved into computer science for a master's was because of the intellectual freedom. And I was like, oh, yes, that's like, that is one of the things that I'm massively nice. loving about it is because computer yeah. science is just, I guess a lot, when I moved into computer science, a lot of people were like, oh, great idea. It's like, that's such a growing field. Like you'll have mm. a job forever. I was kind of like, I don't give a fuck if I have a job forever. I want to be able to do like, I want to be employed to do sort of interesting things yeah. forever. That's the kind of the goal. Yeah. And the fact that you can go and, yeah, work in physics or software engineering or, you know, data science or um, machine learning, whatever it is, like, there's some sort of computer science version that maps onto almost any other subject. Hmm. So, Um, like, pharmacology is a lot more restricted because of the regulations? Well, I wouldn't say just the regulations, just, like, how... Everything's Appl- already applicable. It is to other fields, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas that there's sense. a lot of, I think, intellectual freedom in computer science. Like, yeah, you're always looking at code, but that code could be applied to, you know, um, quantitative trading. And it's like then you've got to learn a lot about the stock market. It's almost like an excuse to learn about hmm. all these other things. Oh, you want to build a, um, you know, the latest and greatest machine learning fitness app? Oh, cool. Yeah. You're going to need to know a lot about fitness to do that. Yeah. And that's why you get really crappy apps because it's just been built by someone with hmm. computer science knowledge but not domain specific knowledge in regards to like the app hmm. yeah i think the point was that uh just sort of like we were speaking about last week about diversifying your knowledge but also just getting down to the first principles thinking of things to then be able to i guess exploit that knowledge and exploit those skills in many different domains and areas um because it Oh, I just went deaf for a second. That was weird. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just went deaf for a second in one ear. Um, because, yeah, if you just like hyper-specialize in one field um, uh, for something that, you know, might not, well, I guess like nearly anything is this, but that might not have that much longevity as a field. Um, for example, like an anesthesiologist or an MRI. What are the people that read MRIs called? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, radiologist? Yeah, yeah, I think that's one. Because we are, I think, already at a place where machines are doing a better job than people at that. Um, so those are just some examples of where, like, if you just learn the the fundamental underlying principles of things, which probably a lot of those people have, um, rather than just learning, say, the skill, um, then, yeah, you're able to pivot. Um, and yeah, to get something I forgot to mention last week is that that was exactly my, my situation. Like when I lost my job last lockdown, um, or the first lockdown, I lost my job for about a month. Um, and then 
yeah, sort of got lucky, but sort of also was building up these skills and had some volunteer experience where I could make that quick pivot and have some sort of, um, was some sort of value in a different field rather than just being like really hyper-specialized in the one field. Um, yeah, so I think, yeah, be be able to pivot. <laughs> Learn the principles, be able to pivot and exploit those in different areas. Yeah, but... Is that our theme for this episode? I've been trying to like work out the whole time. It's like, what are we talking about here? Oh, I thought the theme was just babble. <laughs> <laughs> ne- Tired ne- babble. Next week we'll be pruned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, what what are like obviously looking at finishing up because we're doing a lot of babble. Um, any other reflections from the week or from your readings or bearish and or bullish? Or just general reflections on the journey thus far, as it's a good watershed moment for the boys. Um, there was something in my mind not too right. long ago. What do you think? What do you think? Yeah, oh, that's right. I sort of remember. Um, so I was working on. Well, we referenced my mistakes article, and I have also started writing what I'll consider to be my rebuttal of your own, yours and Brian's criticism. I've doubled down, by the way. Really? I hope you have, because we'll, we can go at it. Okay. We can go at it with Brian again, round two. Cool, because I was like, I was writing it, I was like, man, am I strawmanning their arguments? Because I was like, I feel like <sighs> just tearing It's easy. <laughs> well, shadow boxing's easy, we all know <laughs> yeah. that. <laughs> let's, maybe let's dive into it a little bit for a second then. But the what I was going, like... I want to highlight some of my motivation for writing that article and why I think it's super important. Um, I have made, like, I'm imperfect. We can certainly admit that. But I can't point to that many other than the extremely obvious ones of, like, the mistakes I've made in my past. Hmm. And that seems like like a pretty glaring error, not only for myself. I think it's something that we all go through. I mean, but it's like, you know, I could maybe list, let's say, half a dozen mistakes easily off the top of my head, a dozen if I was pushing it. Yeah. But up until the point of 28 years old, I've made a ton more mistakes than that and a lot of really, really impactful ones, I think, that I haven't been able to, like, notice them or categorize them. And that's part of why I'm trying to write this series on mistakes and make them more salient make them more concrete, categorizable, definable, and hopefully build some, you know, next steps on top of them. Can we just pause that? So just so I can clarify if I've understood, is your point that you know that it's there's a high probability that you've made a shit ton of mistakes. However, say in your conscious mind, you can only um, grasp a handful. Yeah, that that I would say that's the that, that's the general. But you suspect there's heaps more thesis. that you're not um, that you're not aware of, kind of thing. Yeah, and that's not to say that um, you know I haven't updated a lot of my models of behavior and thought um, that are unconscious because, like, we do improve unconsciously as well as consciously. Mm. But I guess the point I'm getting at is like our unconscious mind isn't just pure you know, chaos and like just mm. all this cause of bad behavior. It's a lot of our good behaviors are embedded in our unconscious mind. Yeah. Yeah. However, I think, you know, if you were to take, you know, 
counterfactual parallel universe or whatever. And there's a me who is much more conscious of mistakes that they've made in their past and can draw some kind of causal line through each of them. I think that's a better informed person than the me who's sitting here going, oh, I've probably made a ton of them, but I can only think of about five. Interesting. So your goal um, or motivation is really just creating a bit of a process for identifying mistakes rather than rather than putting in a place a blanket outlaw of mistakes i was never never putting in a blanket outlaw of mistakes just because i said mistakes are bad like and i don't i don't think you can make actually make that argument any other way yeah what do you mean say that again i which argument any other way well so that i guess you and brian i think were defending mistake making because it's a step on the path towards learning but the point of learning is to avoid making mistakes. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have to make mistakes in order to learn, say you, like you take the right path by accident, yeah, yeah, that's still better than making a mistake. I see your point. My I cling more to the idea of the the exploring. So again, I think I do think I summarized my point well last time when I said. Even if I think there's maybe a slightly more, even if I think there's a slightly higher probability of this being a mistake rather than um, reaching this predetermined end goal in my mind, I would still find it valuable to explore that territory. So it's not a mistake then. Like that's taking a very local, local perspective. But even if it turns out to be, I was completely wrong. I don't think you were, say, wrong from that global perspective if you still had that itch that you think it's right to explore this territory. <laughs> yeah. Because <But laughs> that's my framework, though. Okay, let's let's maybe try and use falsifiability. Yeah. So you, yeah, and, yeah. you and Brian were using falsifiability as this way that sort of said yeah. um, mistake-making is important and... Well, I just want to clear that like the attempt at not mistake making just as a end point, but just the the acceptance that that may happen on the attempt of exploration. Not like, like your point was... I don't think falsifiability is exploration. It's a test for robustness. Yeah. Okay. So what I was saying is we should pick the best path that we think is presented to us, Mm. okay? In falsifiability, at no point do we pick, oh, you know, maybe we should treat people with homeopathy because, you know, it's exploratory. No, Mm. we pick the best model in front of us and it might prove wrong. It might prove imperfect in some way. Mm. We still made the best choice available to us and that is not a mistake. Um, Or... However, sorry, there is errors contained within that. Say we've been treating people medically with this theory that missed the mark by some amount of percentage points. Hmm. That still has costs, Hmm. okay? And we shouldn't be aiming for that in any way, and that's still bad. Hmm. But 
yeah, as I said, I don't think falsifiability is some kind of acceptance or like acceptance. We do accept mistakes, but we by all means should be trying to minimize them. And as I said, I don't think falsifiability promotes mistake making in any way. I think um, like with my Explorer sort of framework, we're trying to reduce future mistakes that we're not even aware of yet. What about that, you know? Yeah, I think that's fine. It's like, but you're yeah. still operating on the basis of minimizing mistakes. It's like when yeah. viewed a lifetime viewed overall, you're still trying to minimize mistakes. Yeah, yeah. But uh, say, tell me, do you disagree with this point though? That kind of what I said before about even if you think there's a higher probability than not of making a mistake in this circumstance, it's still worth undertaking the thing, aka exploring that territory. I just don't... Well, it would depend on how likely something is to be... Like, say you learn from... Like, because I think that's just this catch-all way to clear the slate on your end. It's like, oh, I learned from it. Yeah. It's like... But but mine's a bit clearer than that. That's just post-hoc rationalization. Mine's... I'm going in with the understanding that I very well could be wrong. Not like, oh, I'm going to be right. Oh, I fucked up. Oh, well, at least I learned from it. Like, Can you give me an example then? Um, it's always hard to think of examples off the top of the head. Well, let's just take the the path analogy that we use. You're driving. I'm driving to your house. You know, I take a wrong turn. And then after it, I'm like, oh, fuck. Oh, well, you know, at least I get to look at the stars or look at this countryside rather than like me looking at the map and being like, oh, I don't really know which road to take, but I'll explore it with the understanding of being like, it might take me a little bit longer, but I could explore some more interesting territory. Is that a clear example? No, not at all. (laughs) Because I still think, I still think you're, you know, you're defining the mistake on one level. And saying like, well, the goal is to get to the destination as, um, you know, as fast as possible. But if on mm. at the global level, you're still interested in exploring, mm. then and like sightseeing and doing all these things, then it's like you haven't really made. You can't call it a mistake and then say, oh, but see, it still fits. Right, right, because the goal's different. The goals change. From yeah, getting there as fast as possible. It's like whatever you de- whatever you desire. I don't think you can make any case for making mistakes along that journey. Yeah, I may need some more thinking time on this one. Definitely will. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I understand that we're both not at our cognitive best. But But I think I've I've still got more to come back with next time. You better because it's all seeming pretty clear cut at this point. (laughs) Listeners, listeners, who would you side with? Reach out to <laughs> conduit.au. See, I feel like I yeah, I admit I'm fighting the uphill battle here because I yeah. think there's been such an okaying yeah. of... Now people recoil. As I said in that article, yeah. whenever you say anything is bad, I said mistakes yeah. are bad and people yeah. are like, oh, hang on, I've been taught self-acceptance and... Exactly. There's a... It's it's an... Un- and I'm, I'm completely on board with this about just the detriments of this hyper relativistic subjectivism way of going around the world of 
you know, not not buying into objective things or not even that, like not having the balls to say something objectively or normatively. Um, and even like us, I'm very often very scared of saying, oh, not scared, but just like I often shy away from giving normative um, advice, normative being like you ought to do this. Um, because, yeah, again, like there is just we are living in a time of relativism on almost every level and i th- i do think that's a mistake <laughs> to bring it back yeah and again like that's why your point is the harder point to make yeah so let's let's have one more crack at this yeah okay where are the only it's a very it's a toy problem you're driving from your house to my house hmm. you always take the same route we'll call it route B because there's a faster Mm. one and a slower one available to you that you're not aware of at this stage. You always take route B and you're only aware of route B. And again, the only goal you're going is to get from a, from your house to my house as quickly as possible. On one day you explore and you go down route C and you learn that, Oh, that was slower. Mm. But I learned that that route's slower. What, Mm. like how is that beneficial? I think it's like you, say you, you detoured hmm. and now like it was not your default. Hmm. You chose to move away from the default and that was worse. Yeah, like, that's a good example. I think another great example, and I will address that one. Another great example that is probably a little bit more salient in my mind is like the overcorrection mechanism. I think that is what we originally spoke about the other week with Brian. Because that, that makes a lot more sense to me. Like, again, I'm becoming more sympathetic to overcorrection because, like, you just have this view that, not you personally, but one has the view that X is the spot we need to get back to X without exploring, say, B, which is, you know, earlier in the alphabet, the left side of the alphabet, without exploring B. We might have only explored K, but I think there's value in exploring and I think, yeah, the the social movements and the overcorrections in social movements, say racism, sexism, I think that's the lens that makes sense to me. It's it's a little bit harder for me to talk talk about it on uh, just a very confined um, example. Maybe that's just highlighting where I'm trying to be too, where I'm trying to wiggle out of it. <laughs> I get, I think I get what you're saying. So say like with, with a really um, like multivariate data set, say, or some kind of problem. Yeah. yeah. There's on, in some scenarios that are net detrimental overall or net negative, there's still some, on some particular metric within that hmm you know, um, scenario, there are things that we're doing better than what we were doing, say, originally. Let's say, you know, take, we live in, however you would define our economy currently, we'll label that, you know, some setup, we'll label it A, um, now you take some more communistic variant and call it Overall, yeah. the communistic variant is worse, but let's say, um, uh, like, happiness within the family and, mm. you know, 
the maintenance of marriages. Mm. It's like, let's say they're better. if or Even if overall yeah. there's less um, welfare. Yeah. You, you're saying there's some value to us exploring that landscape and working out where some things are better or worse than... Yeah, I think you can... Very much so, yeah. I think... But, uh, and I know you just spoke of those examples because that is what comes to mind. But I guess my my actual point would be that to find the things that you don't even know are better. Like we, we probably have a bit of an idea that like, okay, um, you know, in a somewhat communist community or society, whatever, family structure is probably going to be a little bit more robust and, uh, you know, uh, relationships with your neighbors are probably going to be a little bit better. Um, you know, that's, there's, that's probably a higher probability than not at this stage. But I, I think the point would be just exploring the things that we have no idea that even exist. Like the unknown, the unknowns, like things that we would not even think to look at. I think there is worth exploring that. Yeah. I, I really am on board with that because as I said, at a global level, mm. you're trying to make the minimum amount of mistakes possible. And some, mm. some portion of your, you know, problem solving, you know, um, processes should be about, okay, well, what are the problems that I don't, I'm not even aware of? What are the, yeah, where's the utility that I'm not even looking at at this yeah. point, rather than just trying to optimize what I'm aware of. Yeah. Exactly. You still need to sort of be like meta aware. Yeah. Shout so, out to meta. Um, again, I don't see that as a problem. What I see as a problem is the more, um, oh, we tried, you know, this, you know, governance structure, mm. but, it, you know, say, oh, you know, for 2023, all of a sudden Australia goes massive, you know, left-leaning and starts imposing communism and it's just across the board an absolute, you know, schmozzle and we go, oh, but at least we learned from it. Like, yeah. what I'm saying is if like, no, if that looks like a mistake or why did it why did we go for it and it just turned out to be a mistake that we got nothing out of like what we need to do that introspective process of like why did that appear like a good idea to us and it returned nothing hmm. because then in the future there's going to be a ton of situations that probably look like they'll provide value and not actually return any hmm. and yeah i guess to summarize I think we should be careful of saying, oh, we learned from it mm. because we cause a ton of collateral damage along the way and just okay by saying, oh, we learned from it. you got to crack a few eggs to make an omelette, <laughs> as they say. Yep. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm on board with that. I'm on board with cleaving this epithet of, oh, well, we learned from it, justifying the mistakes. I'm on board with that. Um, again, maybe my point is just really around overcorrection as a mechanism and yeah again um becoming more sympathetic of that um yeah just due to the things the unknown unknowns the things that we can't see um but yeah i don't i don't think there's too much daylight between our points to be honest yeah cool um presumably you're referencing just to be clear like you're referencing the orwell um sort of follow-up to Okay, so I, I think... I was just re referencing, like, I think it was Hitler or Stalin. 
yeah, I think I think it was Stalin who said I I don't know. It was anyway, it came out of that sort of oh, era of promote, Yeah. <laughs> I think it was Yeah, um you've got to make a few you've got to crack crack eggs. a few eggs to make an omelet and Orwell basically said, Well, where's your omelet then? Right. Yeah, yeah, it was just and that's kind of what I think is very central to the idea that I'm pushing at. It's like you yeah. can't just say this thing to dismiss what you've done. It's just yeah. like if that was done in the name of good, yeah. where the hell is the good? And then it's possibly yeah. not a mistake then. Yeah. But even if there is some by chance like good that comes out of it, it is kind of that not mistaking good outcomes with good processes um, or good decisions because the good could have just been completely unrelated. Like you could post hoc point at anything. Like a good, maybe a good example is looking at um, like economic growth. It's like people point to the war, uh, I think World War II and be like, oh, that sparked a lot of economic growth. Whereas like if you do the cost benefit analysis, um, you know, I don't know that you'd do that over again. You might just want to avoid it altogether and find a new way to create economic growth that's better. I think that's a good example that sort of links in with what I was saying about the whole purpose of learning is to minimize mistakes. It's kind of like the purpose of economic um, improvement or economic growth is to enhance human welfare. And if you're Mm. going about that by having to kill humans, then you've actually mistaken like a terminal goal, an end goal for an instrumental one. You've got them mixed up. Yeah. And I think a lot of people go again and myself included as well. Like that's, as I said, that's why it was meditational mistakes. I'm trying to like yeah. apply this to myself as yeah. well. Yeah. Don't, don't think, Oh, this mistake was good because it helped me learn. The purpose of learning is to avoid mistakes is to take all the right turns and not the wrong ones because mm. there's cost to wrong turns. Yeah. Yeah, and again, there's like it's all it is all in the like the 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 reason why it's valuable is because the utopia will never never arrive. Like the value is in just the approximation, not the reaching. It's like the classic the dopamine systems. Dopamine comes in the seeking, not the attaining. Yep. So now that we've but yeah, it conversation just inversed it was like absolute dirt for the first however long and then we've got some uh, got some substance do you think we did yeah no i think um the the mistake stuff was interesting it's a lot of still a lot to think on at least there was some substance there yeah okay. for folks i've um i think it will well it obviously depends on how much i write and how much time i put into editing them but i think there's going to be there'll be multiple follow-ups um there's the one yeah more specific to you on brian um another couple of there's another one at least around like hypothesis testing um yeah i'm looking forward to it I, it's mm. i think it's helping me concretize my own ideas and it is good i mean it's the central thrust of less wrong and again like it, it is basically you're like you're writing a uh it's a me- it's a meditation on science and rationality at the end of the day minimizing mistakes and approximating truth so there's obviously a lot there Mm. and i think there's um you did highlight a point that i need to more explicitly address um 
I forget forget what the writer of this one is called. Um, possibly I I won't bother trying to pull it up, but uh, there's a blog like basically a blog book. He's basically mm. structured it so that you can go through it as a book, but it's all all in his blog. Um, I think it's called it's something like the water in the eggplant, and it sounds really really silly. Um, and it, but it all makes points. Um, that makes sense when you read it, and it, it very much about like what this guy was calling meta rationality. Mm. It's like how do we apply? So like system. Uh, sorry, science is a system. Mm. That it's a rational system that helps us better approximate truth. Mm. However, we can also operate at a level where science isn't like is an object within mm. our consideration and we can apply a rational thought to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then we can better optimize science as a system yeah. to better approximate truth faster, say, yeah. or more rationally. And this person was calling that meta-rationality, whereas I would personally just call that, that's still rationality. And I think that's sort of maybe where some of the confusion between you and I were coming from. Mm. Once you were taking that zoomed out and meta perspective, mm. you're like, well, hang on, this mistake turns into a positive. Mm. And I was saying, well, I wasn't taking that localized view to begin with. Mm. I, if that's considered ultimately a positive, then that was still the right move. Mm. Yeah, I, I love that line of thinking. Like, again, just the process of abstracting and... Uh, concretizing is would you say concretizing is the opposite of abstraction yeah or localizing to a degree just that process of oscillating between abstracting something and then concretizing it and like as you said like when you do that the function change changes the form changes like you're able to mold it and shape it and shift it and then again abstract out and work on that um, and vice versa. Like I really, I love that whole process. Um, and I think there's so, there's so much insight to be gained from doing that, f just taking that approach to many things, just looking at it on different levels of scale and different levels of resolution. Um, and also like on a practical sense, like in conversations, just very much making it explicit, just being like, okay, what level of abstraction are you talking on? And like often it'll just be a case of we're talking on different levels, like kind of like we're just defining our terms differently. And I think that, that as people have heard today, that was our that was our roadblock. We were just talking at different levels of mistakes. Yeah, um, I would highly recommend this to you. Then this, all those things that you said are interesting. Um, so the domain name is metarationality.com, um, and as I was talking about. Uh, the title of this sort of um, passage or, yeah, mini book is called In the Cells of the Eggplant. <laughs> and the about, I'll just read it. Meta-rationality powers up technical skills by better understanding of how rationality work works. This site includes a book about meta-rationality in the cells of the eggplant, standalone essays that don't fit in the book, and a meta-blog of news, views, and commentary. Um, so, yeah. That's great. Rationality and refrigerators. Um, is this book for you? How how meta-rationality can level up your work in science, technology, and engineering? 
I was looking for a more sort of generalized description, but that's okay. Um, yeah, big fan of the reference to um, definitions there because that's, as I've said to you before, um, a lot of a lot of the reasons that I end up writing six articles at one time is because mm. I'm writing one and I realize there's there's other ideas that I'm taking as um, a given or axiomatic or that would be really additive to this other article. And that's something that I'm really stuck between at the mm. moment. It's like just put out the article because there's, there's plenty of people that do already understand these ideas. Mm. But then at the other time, it's like, no, I want everyone to be, I want them to be accessible to everyone to some or like a mm. large majority of people so what i'm getting at here is oh, yeah. i was writing the mistakes article and then i started writing one on intentional versus extensional definitions mm. yeah it's a rabbit hole because you got to build the whole framework to like get not to like get people up to your level but just to ensure you're on the same page yeah and um to go back to obviously one of my favorites um favorite writers Ilyeza. um he referenced, or sorry, Nate Saws in one of his articles that I was mm. reading referenced Ilyeza and he said, that's that's why I found the sequences so mind-blowing. Is like, mm. because once I'd studied economics and really thought about um, diplomacy and social organization for years upon years, I finally understood why you had to write, say, 15 articles that seemed completely lateral to the point just yeah. to build the framework yeah. that allowed people to get to the interesting ideas rather yeah. than dismiss them out of hand. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, some of the big, gnarly, grisly ideas, you need such a ramp to get up to yeah. that most people, one, if they just have the first glance at it, it's like, oh, no way, that would never work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it. And that's where the conduit comes in. Try and simplify that process and... Mm. On board. Because mm. that's... That's definitely one of my major, major interests is just improving the working, sort of collective working memory on these problems. Just like make them accessible to more people, have more people thinking about them, more computing power. And just like, let's say there's 10% of the human population currently Hmm. working on the big problems. Whatever you define the big problems to be, Hmm. there's 10% of them. I just think, yeah, if we make those big problems more accessible to more people, yeah, then you obviously get a greater diversity of you know experiences and thought processes and mm. just more computing power overall to help solve them. Yeah, possibly some of the breakthroughs do require you know an Einstein or a Newton or someone like that who has sufficient capacity within their own single mind mm. to solve them. But I don't think we're at a problem at a point where we still can't solve significant portions of problems Mm. across distributed networks. Yeah. Um, The term I came across in the last couple of weeks was distributed cognition. And I guess that probably encapsulates it. Yeah, that's what I'm getting. Yeah, which I really liked. Like, it just makes a lot of sense. And it actually, it made me a little bit more sympathetic to the ideas of diversity I mean, I've, I've never been like anti-diversity. I mean, I'm technically a minority <laughs> as well. You're just like, well, I would be at least. I won't put words in your mouth. I'm anti-dogmatic diversity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I Look, I'll say this. I'm anti-diversity for the sake of diversity. I'm anti-quota diversity. And I sincerely hope I don't lose my job over this. But um, nah. Uh, yeah, like I just, I think 
diversity is fine as long as that's not the the end in itself. Um, that's just that's a metric to track. Um, and I also think it's domain specific. Um, I don't think it would be a great idea to fill quotas for neurosurgeons. However, I don't know I wouldn't think it's a horrible idea to fill quotas um, for representatives of parliament because again, just the on a very fundamental level, like the the consequences of the day to day actions are vastly different. Um, not to say that like parliament doesn't have big consequences; it obviously does. It's just it's not as immediate. It's like there's a lot more safeguards in place for the bureaucracy rather than someone with a knife, you know what I mean? Yeah, completely. And I think this is where there's a big um, demarcation between uh, technical endeavours versus much more abstract. We'll just use that word. Um, You know, when like the whole idea of blind auditions. Yeah, if if you're, let's say, auditioning to be... Um, a neurosurgeon, that should probably be a blind audition. Yeah. For the, as, as blind as you can make that, that should be a blind audition and someone should just be judged on the standard of their work, just yeah. as when they're playing a musical instrument or something like that. Whereas because there's, let's say, less concrete right and wrong answers in the domains of philosophy and politics, mm. and it, it very much has... Um, like taste elements within it, I would say. Um, oh, subjectivity. Yeah, subjectivity. Like that should be, we should be much more prioritizing diversity in those areas, I think. Yeah, that that's a good point. Because I wasn't really sure like, because the obvious question is, well, okay, it's a slippery slope. It can be a slippery, slippery slope problem. Well, if we, okay, diversity quotas in X field, then what's stopping them from just... Um, insidiously becoming you know what i mean what's the word what's stopping it from just uh <laughs> like running rampant yeah run, sorry sorry folks running rampant in all domains and uh again like because if you take on the idea of you're okay with it in this area and that area what's stopping it from running rampant in all areas that is a risk that's a genuine risk and then you obviously need a point you obviously need to draw your line in, in the sand somewhere without having to like, or you need to create a rule, a, a, a bit of a principle. Um, and perhaps that's a good one. Things that are subjective in nature or domains that are subjective, then it's more than okay. Then it's probably okay to have these um, diversity quotas um, in play, but things that are just black and white objective, then yeah, again, it probably doesn't make sen- too much sense to have um, diversity quotas at play. Um, because yeah, I do, I do see, I see the pushback of what's what's stopping it from becoming apparent in every domain, and that I think it's fair to say is something that we don't want. Again, the surgery, the flying a plane is a great example. Of like. You don't want someone flying your plane that got in there not based on merit. Um, yeah, but again, maybe something like parliament or media um, to be a little bit more representative of the uh, of the nation, demographic, civilization, whatever it may be. Yeah. Yep. Happy with all that. Beating a horse to death, as usual. Um, yeah. So thanks, thanks, folks, for tuning in 
as usual. What else can we say? Um, yeah, please don't judge the conduit on how well this episode <laughs> went. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, again, it's a numbers game. Some will be better than others, but we've we've done some laborious work today. So history will, me- will remember us as broken eggs and not omelets. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. But yeah, thanks again for listening. We really appreciate your support. Hope you enjoy the new branding, the new episode intro and outro. And uh, we'll speak to you next week. We'll speak with you next week. Take care of yourself. And that's all we have for today. We thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, we would love it if you could leave a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. If you have any thoughts, you can send an email to conduit.aus at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we'll speak with you next week.